Hi, this is Nathan. Before we get to the episode, I want to invite you to join me on an incredible adventure this November of 2024. I am taking a small group of believers to Turkey, what the New Testament called Asia Minor, for a 12-day Bible study tour of the early church. We'll be studying the book of Acts and many of the epistles on location as we visit ancient cities like Ephesus, Laodicea, Heropolis, Antioch, Pergamum, and many more. If you are interested in joining me this November for a once-in-a-lifetime adventure as we study where much of the New Testament and early church took place, you can learn more by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. And if you're interested, don't delay. Spots are limited and on a first-come, first-served basis, and a $100 discount is available if you register before May 27th. I do hope you can join me. And again, more information is available at deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. Now, here's the episode. Welcome to episode 73 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, we are going to talk about the mysterious bride called the church all throughout scripture. Let's dive in. A few weeks ago, back in episode number 68, I gave what was a snapshot of the mysterious bride in scripture. It was kind of a teaser for me to prepare as I was getting ready to speak at a conference. Now, throughout the conference, I had a couple of speaking opportunities, and, and one of those nights, I was looking at Ephesians chapter 5, which is the husband and wife language. Now, if you remember that section in Ephesians 5, Paul's talking about the husbands to love their wives and wives to respect their husbands, but at the very end of the passage, he says, wow, when, when a husband and wife comes together, they become a picture of Jesus Christ and the church. And Paul says, this really is a mystery. Well, I began to study this idea out and I began to find that this mystery of the bride and this groom is really found all throughout scripture. And it really is amazing. So if you like that little snapshot of the mysterious bride in scripture back in episode number 68, today you're going to love the episode. Now, today what we're going to do is I'm going to play you the sermon that I preached a few weeks ago in Tennessee at the Cross Style Conference. It really was just a powerful session. And at least for me, God was just, God was enunciating some really powerful truths, even just in my life, of what does it mean for the church to be the bride of Christ. So without further ado, here is my sermon from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33 on the mysterious bride in Scripture. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. It's interesting. I, I've been a rather nervous about getting into this section. And part of the reason is starting in verse 22, uh, Paul is jumping into the section about wives and husbands. And it was one of those sections where I was like, all right, do I dive in? Do I not dive in? Should I wait till I'm married? You know, should I, should I study it now? Because maybe then I will get married. Like, like, well, like how does this work? And it was interesting as I've been pondering this passage, you realize it was written by a single guy. <laughs> So I realize it's probably safe for me to study it. <laughs> now, I just want to forewarn you, um, there's going to, I don't know how to articulate the concept. I've been wrestling for months, and it's just like the, there's this bottomless well that God has opened up in my life. 
Uh, I was telling Sean at lunch today that, you know, it's like when I traveled with Stephen and Delphine, the word became alive in, in a way that I, I cannot even describe to you. It's like I began to see it, and Jesus was real, and it's like, wow, this is so phenomenal, and my life isn't the same. And then it was about eight years ago or so, I began to realize, and Jeremiah was poking at it this morning, that all of Scripture points to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament is about him. It's, it's a big sign saying, look at him. And it is, it is so rich. And as soon as I grabbed a hold of that concept, I could not read the word the same way again. When I get into the Old Testament, it's just like Jesus is screaming in my face. And if you want a word for that, it's called Christophany. That's, that's the word. That, that, that this idea of Christophany, seeing Jesus on every page, it, it is so mind-boggling. I wish, I wish I had like 12 hours to walk you through. I wish I had five minutes. I could just do a few of them. But it is so rich when you begin to see that Jesus is everywhere in Scripture. And that, that totally radically changed my life. And I feel like, as I've been diving into this, I don't know how to describe this. I feel like I'm on one of those brink changing points in my, my spiritual life where it's like I can't read the word the same way. So again, there's this concept that I've been really wrestling with, and it's like it's beginning to open up the word in a, it's not that it's changed, it's deepened. That this whole thing's all about Jesus, and there's this concept that is going deeper and deeper, and I'm like, I, I, I'm not the same person. And I have no idea how to describe that to you tonight, <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to try. Uh, so if you leave going, what? Me too, okay? Uh, and you realize that we're just going to hit the very tippy top of the, this iceberg because uh, the more I look at this, the more deep it gets. It really is, it is so rich. So read with me. This is Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 22. I want you to catch something. Paul is saying this. By the way, this is in the context of submission. If you look at verse 21, he's talking about the body of Christ. And he says, hey, if you're in the body, there's this element of submission. And then he says, oh, let me give you a picture of that. And he talks about wives and husbands. And then in chapter 6, he talks about children and parents. And then verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 5, he talks about servants and masters. So he's giving three illustrations of this idea of submission. But catch this. It's like Paul is in this, whoa, state as he's writing this. So here's Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head and savior of the church, which is his body. But as the church submits to Christ, so also let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your own wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, and that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. In this way, men ought to love their own wives with their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord cares for the church. Now catch this. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I am speaking about Christ and the church. Now I don't know if you caught this. I have grown up in the church and I've heard this passage referred to over and over and over again about the principles of how husbands and wives are supposed to interact. And there's nothing wrong with that because there's obviously principles of how husbands and wives are to interact. But that is not what the passage is about. This passage is not about husbands and wives. This passage is about a bridegroom 
and a bride. The bridegroom's name, you'll never guess. <laughs> His name is Jesus. And he has a bride called the church. And Paul is trying to articulate, and so therefore he's using a physical marriage to say, I don't know how to describe this to you. Let me use a physical marriage. See how husbands and wives are interacting? That is how Christ and the church is to interact. So even though there are principles for husbands and wives, this is not about husbands and wives. This is about us as a body and him. Now, I am going to, I don't know how to do this. Well, I'm going to give you a big picture view of that. And I'm going to give you a ton of scripture. Now, if you know preaching, that's probably not the wisest thing to do. It's just to pepper you with a whole bunch of passages. So here's my encouragement. Either A, jot down all the references, or B, don't worry about it, just listen. Because I want you to catch the concept. Okay? So again, look, look, at verse, look at verse 32. Paul says, this is a great mystery. You know what the word great means? great. This is huge. It's like Paul is so captivated. He's just like, whoa, I don't even know how to describe this. This is a mystery. Do you know what a mystery is? A mystery is one of those things that when you hear it, you go, what? Why? Because it's a mystery. All right, you'll catch on. He says, this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking about Christ and the church. It's interesting to me. I have missed this all the way through Ephesians. Do you know that Ephesians is one of the few books that Paul wrote that was not a correction book? Paul's correcting Corinth and, and I mean, you start Galatia, Galatia and I mean, you start looking at his books. Paul's correcting, 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 correcting. Ephesians is not a correction book. It's like Ephesians becomes a, oh, I'm seeing Jesus and I want to give an articulation of the reality of Jesus. It's interesting to me that back in chapter one, he talks about the mystery. Now, I've, somehow I missed this. Now, I mean, I preached a sermon on the mystery, but somehow I missed the mystery. <laughs> it's, it's insane. It's so dumb. So chapter 1, the very first part of this, in verses like 9 and 10 and 11, he's talking about this mystery. Now, later on in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he's talking about a mystery. And then and he gets into chapter 3, he says that there is an eternal purpose of God. And this is what's been exploding my mind. Realizing, I've heard that term, that God has an eternal purpose. Oh. Have you ever pondered what the eternal purpose of God is? It is not your redemption. Because if it was your redemption, how is it an eternal plan? See, he had an eternal plan even before he created humanity, even before he said, let there be light. There is an eternal plan of God that is not going away. Now, salvation is a part of that. But that's not the big deal. Does that make sense to you? In other words, why did Jesus come and die upon the cross? <gasps> to save me from my sins. No. Yes. But no. Yes, he died to save you from your sins. I'm not arguing that. Please don't leave here going, no. Right? <laughs> he did. He died to save you from your sins. But that wasn't the end goal. That was to open up an avenue to get you into the eternal purpose stuff. Now, as I've been pondering the eternal purpose of God, this has been like I am drowning. Because I don't even know how to, how do you begin to dive into this stuff? And it is so deep. And again, we're just cracking the little surface here. In Colossians, Paul says, oh, there's this mystery hidden for ages and generations. Do you know what it is? 
Christ in you. The hope of glory. Is that God's eternal purpose? That's part of it. Now the Ephesians language that Paul uses in Ephesians is that the mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews. Well, I thought it was Christ in me. It is. Well, then what about this Gentile thing? It is. Not cool. Because you're a Gentile. And you weren't chosen. The Jews were chosen. But yet he has grafted you in. He has brought you in. And now you get to experience the fullness and the reality of Jesus Christ, which is now inside of you. And that is a part of the eternal purpose. Well, what's the eternal purpose? If I was to summarize the eternal purpose in one word, it would be Jesus. The book of Romans says that all things are for him and through him and to him. That's God's eternal purpose. That God, uh, the Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9 and 10 says that all things are being consummated. All things are coming together. All things are funneling into Jesus Christ. That Christ is the big deal. That there is something going on. And, and man, that the, the Father is just going, look at the Son. Look at the Son. The Holy Spirit in John 16 says, look at the Son. Look at the Son. And the Son said, they're going, whoa, would you embrace me? And somehow all of creation and all of eternity and all of the universe is coming and centering to glorify and magnify Jesus Christ. And you realize that you as a believer were created to be filled with his presence so that you would demonstrate the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. So that all the world and all the universe and all the animals and all the people could look at you and go, whoa, Jesus. That this is not about you. This is all about him. It's never been about you. It's all been about him. Now, that's a part of this. Well, what's going on in this marriage language? This is so amazing to me. Paul says there's this great mystery. It's all about Christ and the church. I love this passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, think about this, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that was set before him? Could I propose to you that the joy that was set before him, why he endured the cross, the joy that he was like, I am willing to suffer. I am willing to go through every pain. I am willing to go through all of this. It's for the joy of having a bride. Now that doesn't just show up in the New Testament. That is Bible language. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, and if you don't know where that is, it's the very front of your book. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 2, God is creating. He creates day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6. And on day 6, he climaxes creation with the creation of humanity in this man called Adam. And you realize at the end of day 6, he closes creation. Creation is over. And he rests on day 7. Now isn't it interesting that when you come into verse 18 of chapter 2... It says that God formed the man. And then in verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. And I will make him a helper suitable for him. And then what's interesting is that verse 19 says, You know what God did? God took all the animals that he created and really brought them before Adam. And says, Hey, would you name the animals? And it says that as Adam was naming the animals, he began to realize 
that, hey, there's all these companions. There's a male and a female, a male and a female, a male and a female. And he began to realize, well, where's my counterpart? Think about this. There was no species for Adam to marry. There's none like him. So when you get into the passage and you get down to verse 19, uh, sorry, uh, verse 21, it says, Then the Lord God caused a deep sleep. Just ponder this. This is so amazing. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. Then God took one of his ribs and closed up the place with his flesh. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made, literally means to build, into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh to my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out a man. Oh. Think about this. There's no species that Adam can wed. So God says, Oh, I have this idea. In fact, this has been the plan all along. He goes, Adam, I'm going to put you into a deep sleep. And as he's in his deep sleep, God reaches in and yanks out part of Adam. And brings out the piece of Adam and it shapes that piece into a new creation. Because creation was over. So this is the start of a new creation. What's interesting is that this is the last of the creation. Which means, and you know how, how artists work. Whatever your last piece is, that is your masterpiece. Ladies. <laughs> <laughs> give you a few of the aspects. When you get into this passage, it's really fascinating to me. There are several key aspects about this first bride that point, or it's a picture, or it's a shadow, or it's a symbolic reality of us, the bride, the church. Let me just go through these really quickly. Do you realize that the woman, this is so crazy to me, that the woman was inside the man. In other words, here's Adam. He's roaming around the world or on the earth in the garden. You realize that there was a girl inside of him. <laughs> that's, that's a true statement. That he was looking for a girl to marry and all the time she was inside. Isn't that a cool thought? I'll explain that in just one second. You realize that if God took Adam's rib and yanked it and fashioned a woman, she had his DNA. That she was formed just like him. That she was his counterpart. She looked just like him, though she was different. Uh, she actually had the same name as Adam. In fact, in Genesis chapter 5, it says, This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them Adam. Do you realize that she had his name? It wasn't until after the fall as far as I can tell, that she was given the name Eve. That prior to the fall, her name was Adam. That's brilliant. You'll, you'll see this in just a second. Again, she's a masterpiece. She was uncreated. I mean, she's a new creation, but she's uncreated. She's really pulled out of the side of Adam. She is flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. She is flawless. Because the, sin had not, the, the fall had not taken place. Sin had not entered in. So she is perfect. She is without spot or without wrinkle. And what's interesting is, it seems to suggest that Adam is the source of her life because it's his life that was given to her. Now, take that 
you realize this is a picture of Jesus coming to the church. Here's Jesus. And he's with the Father. And the Father looks at Jesus. Now, what's interesting in the Ephesians passage, he's saying, hey, this is, hey, this is the bridegroom and the bride. This is, hey, this is about Christ and the church. And then, in the middle of that, right before he says the mystery thing, he says, the fa- uh, the, the, let me just read it really quick. Uh, that the son, where is it at? That man should not, well, whatever it is. I'll just read it because it'll be better if I... It is not good that man should be alone. I will make or I'll build a helper suitable for him. That's in the context of Christ and the church. Here's, here's the idea. Here's the Godhead prior to creation. And they're all mingling together. And you can figure out this theology, the, theologically. But it's like the father looked at the son, Jesus, and said, Son, it is not good for you to be alone. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm only going to go and fashion a helper for you. I'm going to build a woman for you. A pure and spotless bride just for you. Your counterpart that's going to look like you and act like you and talk like you and think like you because I'm going to yank her out of your side. So what did he do? Jesus came to earth and while he was in a deep sleep called death, a spear pierced his side. Blood and water poured out. Blood is a symbol of life. And it's a symbol of cleansing. Water poured out, it's a symbol of life. And it's a symbol of cleansing. And in the act of death on the cross, God was purchasing a bride for his son. But that bride, think about this, wasn't created. She was yanked out of the side of the man. And she, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17, is a brand new creation. I mean, isn't that amazing? So, let me go through the aspects of the second bride. (laughs) This is so crazy. So, just as the woman was hidden inside of the first man, so the bride was hidden inside of the second man. Ephesians 1 forces this. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Do you know where you were? Prior to even creation existing, you were on the heart and the mind of God. That you were chosen for a purpose. Why? To be a bride. Now that bride is the body of Christ. Do you realize that we as the body are called the body? And he is the head, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 through 23. The church, the bride, has the same DNA, has the exact same likeness as the man. We look just like him, though we are different. But we have his likeness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 4 says this. As his, speaking about Jesus, divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. You get to partake of the divine DNA. Why? Because you've been pulled out of him. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We have the same name as him. You are called a Christian. You have his name. And by the way, name biblically is not like a name like Bob, Sue, Josephine. A name biblically is all about character, nature, attitude, that kind of stuff. 
uh, Revelation 22, 4. I thought this was so neat. It says, they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. Why? We're the bride, folks. Just as Eve was the masterpiece of God's creation, do you realize the church, the, the body of Christ is God's masterpiece? In fact, in Ephesians 2.10, it says that you are God's workmanship. It literally means a masterpiece. That, that Eve was uncreated, but it was really, the church is uncreated, if you want to say it that way. That she was yanked out of the life of Christ, the sight of Christ. We are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. That we are a new creation. That is so neat. I mean, that's so phenomenal. Uh, and Christ is the source of our bride, the bride's life. And you realize that just like Eve was pure and spotless because the fall had not taken place, God's desire for his bride, for the bride for his son, is to be a pure and spotless bride. Which is what he's wanting to do in our lives. Isn't that just... <laughs> so, let's add another element to this whole thing. Do you realize that when Jesus was on the earth, and we, we've tinkered with this before and we've said these kind of things, but do you realize that when Jesus was walking, walking on earth, he was literally living out wedding language? Like all that he was doing was like constant wedding language stuff. That if you looked at Israel culture of the day, and you looked at how they structured weddings and ceremonies and stuff, it's like, whoa! It's like everything that Jesus talked about. Let me just walk you through this. Because this is so cool. A couple quick laying foundation things. Do you realize the very first miracle that Jesus performed was at a wedding? That's not by accident. And what's interesting is it's actually not just a wedding feast miracle. It's the fact that the symbol of the old covenant, the ceremonial washing things, the basins, the water pots, was being exchanged for something new, which was the wine. Talking about there's this brand new covenant. There's a, there's a shift taking place, which is what? Him. Well, that's fascinating. Are uh, you coming to John chapter 3? Do you know how John the Baptist introduces Jesus? He says, Woo! There's the bridegroom. That his name is a bridegroom. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus himself calls himself a bridegroom. In chapter 22 of Matthew, he gives a parable about a wedding feast. In chapter 25, there's this interesting parable about 10 virgins. Wish we had time to get into it. But five are ready, five are not ready. You can ponder that later. So think about this. When a man was ready to be married, the father would go and arrange a marriage for his son. Okay? Everyone with me so far? I know this is not our culture. I'm not suggesting we put this into our culture. Okay? I'm just talking about their culture. Everyone okay? Some of you are like, no. Okay. Once that arranged marriage took place, the groom would go to the bride. And he would basically propose. Do you know how he proposed? He would take a cup of wine and he would set it before her. And if she drank, she says, I accept. Isn't it interesting that at the last supper scene, here's Jesus with the start of the church, his disciples. And he takes bread and he takes a cup of wine and he places it before and says, will you drink of this covenant, this marriage covenant? And they drank, saying, oh, we accept. Gets better. At that point, 
if she accepts, the groom would have to pay the father a dowry. And yeah, it's a bridal price. You know, three cows or two chickens or whatever it may be at the time, right? Do you realize that's what Jesus did for us? That Jesus bought us with a price. First Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price. There was a dowry paid for you. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of, as of a lamb without spot or blemish. You were purchased, folks. A bridal price was given to you. Why? Because you have a groom. At this point, after the bridal price is paid, the groom would present gifts to his bride. And it was for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them is so that she would be all decked out and all beautiful and all that kind of stuff. But the other reason is so that she wouldn't forget him when he was off during the engagement time to build a house. Isn't it interesting that Jesus talked about, hey, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit and you're going to receive gifts? Why? Well, so you remember the groom. It's not about the gifts. It's all about the groom. Don't get lost in the gift. Get lost in the one who gave it. Yeah. And so here you are, John 14, 26. Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. Ephesians 4, 8. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. 1 Corinthians 12, 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Don't forget, you have spiritual gifts. Why? Because that's what a groom would give his bride. Now, at this point, after she received the gifts, both the groom and the bride would take a, uh, a ritual bath as a symbol of cleansing. That they're saying, hey, we are, we are pure and spotless and we're really going to really covenant with each other. That, hey, we are pure and we're moving forward in this direction. <laughs> Titus 3.5. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 25. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. You have been purified and cleansed to make yourself ready for the bridegroom. Now, at this point, the bridegroom would leave and begin to prepare a room on the father's house. So the father would have his house and the son would go and he began to build this little extension. It was the bridal chambers of where he's going to live. They lived in community. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus looked at his disciples in John 14 and said, In my Father's house there are many rooms. It's not the word mansion, by the way. There's nothing about mansions in the passage. Because we're talking about Israel culture here. Hey, in my Father's house there are lots of rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. What is that? Wedding language. And if, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. <laughs> now, when he finishes the wedding chamber, <clears throat> by the way, at this point, the groomsmen or, or the best man would go back and forth, back and forth, deli delivering letters and the little, you know, like, oh, he loves you. He really does love you. Don't forget him kind of stuff. Okay? So that's happening. By the way, that's a picture of the Holy Spirit. But I'll let you figure that out. So at this point... The wedding chamber is done, and the groom is ready to go meet his bride. Now, the bride would not know the day or the hour that he would come, but she knew, would know the season, about the right time frame that he would, have, 
he would come. So she would prepare herself. She would always deck herself out every time, every, every evening with her wedding gown ready for the, hey, is he going to come tonight? Is he going to come tonight? Is he going to come tonight? And when he did show up, do you know how he would show up? As he neared her house, he would give a shout and he would blow a shofar, a trumpet, to announce, I'm here. Does that sound familiar? First uh, Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet, literally a shofar of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Isn't this awesome? This is just like, I don't know, so we're not even done. <laughs> now at this point, the bridegroom would take the bride into the wedding chamber. Now, I don't want to get technical here, and if you have questions about this, you can ask Stephen later. I'm not married, so I don't, I don't know. Uh, so the, the groom would take the bride into the wedding chamber, <clears throat> and he would consummate the marriage. But what's interesting is that the best man, the groomsman, would literally have his, this is so awkward, would have his ear to the door. And when the, when the, when the wedding was consummated, when the marriage was consummated, the groom would cry out, It is finished! <laughs> <clears throat> Talk to Stephen. <laughs> so, when that happened, the best man would run into the wedding party, because the party's happening downstairs, and he would, he would go, it is finished, they are married! And there would be this big rejoicing. And after seven days of partying, <laughs> oh, sorry, let me read the passage. John chapter 3, verse 29. John the Baptist is talking. This is so crazy. It says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. He's listening. He hears the bridegroom's voice and he rejoices. Why? Because the marriage has taken place. Therefore, says John the Baptist, this joy of mine is fulfilled. That this thing is taking place. So then after the seven days of celebration were over, the official marriage supper would begin. And the bride at this point would no longer be a bride, she would be a wife. Revelation 19, 7 through 9. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb, Jesus, has come. And his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. Talking about pure and spotless. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And then in chapter 21, verse 9, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked to me, saying, come, come, and I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Do you realize that what Jesus was doing was bridal language? He's saying, do you not realize I, I have purchased a bride? And boy, my heart is just, oh, I'm so full of passion for this bride. See, the father so loved this bride that he gave his only begotten son that who would ever believe in him should not perish, but all oh, be married to the son and have life because that son is life. And so the father is looking saying, oh, would you embrace the son? Why? Because he's all that I've dreamed for you. And you realize the eternal purpose of God is all about Jesus. And hey, would you get tight with the one that you're going to be married to for the rest of eternity? Now you realize that has not yet taken place. 
the marriage supper of the Lamb has not yet taken place. That's still coming. That we are in that bridal period where we are awaiting. In fact, we know it's a season thing. That, hey, we don't know the day or the hour, but we should be prepared. We should be dressed. We should be ready. We should be pure and spotless and going, is today the day? Is today the day? Is today the day? Is today the day? Because one day, we're going to hear a shout and a trumpet and woo! Party. Now, I don't know how this is going to happen. <laughs> like, how the consummation of the bride and Jesus is going to take place. I have no idea. But God is brilliant. So I'm trusting that he knows what's going on. But you realize that was all a picture of a greater reality, which is Christ and the church. Now, if that wasn't enough, let's go to another level. I know. (laughs) Remember, this is just the tip of the iceberg. That's what I'm like. The word of God is opening up in a way that I just, I cannot even describe to you. It is so rich. Like richer than I've, I don't know. It's just so good. Do you realize this language that we're talking about is everywhere in scripture? I mean, like everywhere in scripture. I mean, you, you can't, it's like you take a step and you're like, whoo, there it is too. Which is why it's been so much, I mean, it's been so delightful going back to the word. It's like, there it is, there it is, there it is, there it is, there it is. The father has this passion about a bride for his son. Do you know what's interesting about that bride? The bride, which is the body in the book of Revelation, is also a building. It's a city. And it's like God's eternal purpose. He's really interested in a bride, a body, and a building. And it's interesting that even that word for he formed the woman is actually build. That he's building something. Ephesians talks about that you are precious living stones. Which, by the way, you are made out of clay. And the only way that clay turns into living stones is through pressure, hardship, and fire. But you are being formed in shape and you are being built into a building with the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ being the chief cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 2. That you are being formed into a building. I thought we are a bride. You are. I don't know how, how does this work? I don't know either. <laughs> But it's like God wanted a bride for his son, which is a building, which is a body, because he wanted descendants and children that look just like the son. So though we are the bride, we are the children. <laughs> if you figure that out, come let me know. But you realize that's all over scripture. For, for example, one of my favorite places is, is uh, Hosea. God looks at this prophet and he says, Hosea, I want to show Israel my overwhelming love. I want you to marry this woman. He goes, God, I don't know if you recognize this, but she's a prostitute. God goes, what? (laughs) Oh, no. What was I thinking? No. He goes, obviously. That's my purpose. And Hosea says, I don't know if you recognize this, but I'm a good holy Jew. We don't hang out with the prostitutes. God goes, go hang out with the prostitutes. And so Hosea goes down and he sees her and here she is on the selling block and she's being sold. And Hosea, could you imagine the embarrassment this must have been for Hosea, a good righteous Jew? And she's up on the seller's block, and who wants to bid? And he's just like, oh. <laughs> and this guy goes, 10. He's like, oh, 15, you know? And he has to have the highest bid because God said, you have to take this one. Could you imagine what that must have been like for Gomer? Here she is. There's no girl. I've, I've never heard of a girl who, as she's a young little girl, dreamt of being a prostitute when she grew up. You don't become a prostitute because you want to be a prostitute. Here's Gomer and she's a prostitute. Could you imagine what this must have been like for her? All of her dreams are shattered and she knows that in this culture, she will never be what she wanted to be. Her dreams of being a princess and riding off with a good righteous Jew, that'll never take place because no good righteous Jew will ever take her now. 
And here she is up on a cellar block, probably dirty and just mucky and probably just going, my life is over and what's the good of all this? And here's this guy starting to bid. Oh, I hate these people. All they ever want to do is use me, use me, use me, use me. And then he grabs her hand and says, hey, I'm going to take you home. All right, well, what do you want to do tonight? In fact, don't even tell me. I already know. He goes, no, 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 I just want to love you. And it was probably a season where she had to learn to trust him. And eventually they had children. And what's interesting, it's not that Hosea faked a love for Gomer. God gave him a love for Gomer, a genuine love for Gomer. Because it was a picture of his love for his prostituted people called Israel. And what's interesting is after having a couple children with some really bizarre names, one day, (laughs) one day, Hosea wakes up and he turns over to give her a morning kiss and she's not there. Oh, well, she must be going and getting some water. But she doesn't come back and suddenly there's this concern. Well, it's been years since all that stuff. Surely she wouldn't. She knows my love and passion for her. Why, why would she? And so she, he runs into town. And he's looking and he's saying, hey, have you seen her? I've seen my wife. And I don't know what happened to her. She in danger. Maybe she's at the hospital. Maybe she's, and he's looking, looking all over the place. And after several, I don't know, hours, days, whatever it may have been, he goes and he's in this town square all these details are not in scripture. I'm just filling some things in. But he gets into the town square and they're selling some people on the seller's block. And he looks and there's this woman who's dirty and grimy. And, but through all the muck he sees, that's, that's my wife. And here she was. I loved her and I cared for her and I just poured my life out for her. And hey, we had children together. And, and what did she do? She threw that all away and ran back into the same junk that I pulled her out of. But you realize he was overwhelmed with a true, genuine love for this woman. And so this guy starts to bid. He goes, no, 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 no. You cannot bid for my wife. But she had already sold herself. So the only way he's going to have her is that he has to start bidding again. Could you imagine what she must have felt? All the disgrace, all of the abuse, all of the sadness, all of just the junk. And she looks up through the tears, and sees these men bidding for her, and she realizes one of them is her husband. Do you know what that must have done to her? And when he won, she probably collapsed. This is my, this is my imagination, but she collapsed, and she, he grabs and picks her up, and just brings her close and says, it's okay, I love you, it's okay, hey, if this, hey things are going to be fine, hey, just, just don't worry, I'll clean you up. And That's you. Isn't it? I mean, here he is, Ezekiel 16. Here you are. You were birthed out in the middle of nowhere, Ezekiel 16. You were full of blood and junk and all that, all the baby stuff. And you know what God did? He went and he took you and cleaned you up. And he cared for you and he fed you. In fact, it says in Ezekiel 16, he put the best clothing upon you. He, put the, he adorned you with jewels. He put the, the best food in front of you. And wow, you had everything you ever wanted. But then do you know what you did? You took all of that, spat in his face, and ran off and prostituted yourself with the culture. And God says, why don't you return? Well, I'm not worthy anymore. You never were. And you realize that God has rescued us, and what have we done? We said, Thank you, God, for saving me from my sin. All right, I'm going to go play the harlot with the culture. So, can I not be married to you? I'll be engaged to you, but can I not also be engaged to the world and participate in all the world? That's not a bride, folks. 
And you recognize that if you are a bride, a bride has one focus. Her groom. And yet look at your life, how distracted you are. Psalm 45, oh, let me read Hosea 2.16. I love this passage. God says, and it shall be in that day that you shall call me Ishi. Yeah, God says, hey, you're gonna, there's going to be a day you're going to call me Ishi, which means my husband. Hey, I brought you out of the prostitute place, but you one day are going to call me husband. Read Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is a wedding song. Read it in light of all this. It is so magical. Song of Solomon. <laughs> Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Do you realize that's true with Jesus? And kissing demands proximity. Or so I'm told. <laughs> I read it on Wikipedia. You realize that you realize that the bride in Song of Solomon, by the way, did you know that in the Hebrew, the bride, we often translate her the Shulamite, which is the most horrible name in the world. But the, the name for the for the woman, the bride, is actually the feminine form of the word Solomon. It's Solomon or Salimo and Solima. She actually takes on his name. And she says, Oh, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Meaning what? Would you draw near and we, we may we just have closeness and relationship? Song of Solomon 2.10, my beloved spoke and said to me, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Do you realize Jesus is staring you in the face saying, rise up, my love, my fair one, come away. Isaiah 62.5, get this, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Uh, not long ago, a couple months ago, uh, there was this young stubbly guy named Aaron standing right here. And there was this beautiful bride called Anna standing right here. If you weren't there, let me try to describe this to you. Aaron. <laughs> was not thinking clearly. <laughs> I don't know what language you want to use. Have you ever seen someone engaged before? It's like every brain cell goes, we're gone. I'll return at the 10-year anniversary, right? It's, it's like they can't think straight. They start losing their car keys. They're just, they're just lost. And you're like, hey, how's the weather? She's so beautiful. I just, uh, what's two plus two? Anna, right? correct answer obviously because that's the only thing that makes sense you realize that when a bridegroom is staring at the bride he can't help but rejoice do you know how God looks at you like that see I had this picture somehow growing up that I caught that it's like God put up with me you know it's like I would wake up in the morning he's like oh bummer hit snooze please hit, hit snooze again why? Because I, I could have less time with you. That's not true. Do you realize it's like he's standing over you going, wake up, 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 wake
In fact, this is probably more than you want to know, but but I, I honestly have one of the world's smallest bladders. I really do. And I think, honestly, I know it's more than you want to know. But I think the reason why God gave me a small bladder is because that means I get to spend more time with him all through the night. Yeah, I might as well. I had to wake up. I go before the throne, and I just... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, focus. Sorry, focus. But do you realize that just as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so does your God rejoice over you. You are not someone he puts up with. You are someone he delights in. And you realize the same is true for a bride for the bridegroom. A bride doesn't have to force herself to think of the bridegroom. She just can't help herself. And of course she wants to make herself ready. Of course she wants to be pure and spotless. Why? Because there's a greater goal and purpose, which is him. This isn't, well, I guess I'll grip my teeth and not do this. Why? Well, I shouldn't do it. This is, whoa, there's something so much bigger. Why would I waste my time with this when this is what I get to partake in? Does this make any sense to you? Now, we don't have time for this, but this is all over scripture. I mean, everywhere. Let me, let me close with this, if I can. <laughs> let me take this one more level. In the book of Genesis, there's this phenomenal story. I wish, you, I wish we had time to study it out. You realize that Abraham and his beloved, only begotten son named Isaac is a Christophany on so many levels. Do you realize that Abraham was called to take his only begotten son, and go and sacrifice him on a mountain. Do you know what mountain that happened to be? Yeah, it was called Golgotha. It was this mountain in Jerusalem that God led Abraham to sacrifice his son on the top of the mountain called Golgotha. By the way, do you know where Jesus was, died, where he was killed at? There. And it says that Abraham took the wood and placed it on his son's back and the son had to carry his own wood up to the altar, or up to the sacrifice. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Anyway, there's a lot of parallels. One of those parallels is after that scene, Abraham is desiring a bride for his son. Here's a father seeking a bride for his beloved only begotten son. And so he looks at this unnamed servant. That's really important. Now we know the servant's name from other passages, but in that passage it is very, very specific. He has no name. Just part of this. And the father sends this unnamed servant to go fetch a bride. And so this unnamed servant travels Hundreds of miles to this place called Haran. And he sits by a well and he says, God, <laughs> my master Abraham, if you are with this, the woman that I say, hey, would you give me a drink of water? And she responds by saying, I'll also give your camels water too. Let me know. I will know that, that this is a sign. And Rebecca comes out and she's, she says, hi. And he goes, hey, could, could I have a drink of water? And she goes, hey, well, I'll, I'll water your camels too, which was not easy. Camels drinking were from 30 to 70 gallons at one time. Multiple camels. She's doing this by hand. Likely her hands have been blistered by the end. But it shows her kindness and love and extravagant uh, willingness to pour her life out. Even if she gets no reward from it. And he says, hey, can I, can I go home with you and, and meet your family? And he gets there and says, hey, I, I'm, I'm you know, a distant relative. My master Abraham is searching for a wife. And I, I really think it's Rebecca. Rebecca, would you be willing to go? And she says, yes. And so he gives all these gifts to Rebecca. 
And then Rebecca gets on the camel and they're traveling probably a month or two. And the entire way, the passage seems to make, or seems to suggest that the unnamed servant is acquainting her with the groom. Because the moment that she sees in the distance this man, she goes, who is that? She goes, that's him. She puts this veil on, she jumps off the camel and, but how did she immediately fall in love with the groom? She'd been introduced by this unnamed servant. Think about this. There's this father. He looks at his son, Jesus, and says, oh, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to go find a bride. And he sends an unnamed servant. Do you realize that when you look at the Old Testament, the father has tons of names. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Rapha. Jesus has tons of names. First, last, beginning, end, the amen, faithful and true witness. But the Holy Spirit is unnamed. There's no name. We call him the Holy Spirit because he's holy and he's a spirit. But there's no name. He is an unnamed servant. Do you realize that that unnamed servant never points to himself? In fact, if you want to know what a spirit-filled believer looks like, it's someone who doesn't talk about the spirit. It's someone who talks about Jesus. Because the, or the spirit is constantly pointing to the son. And the more spirit you have, the more you're going to talk about Jesus. And so here's this unnamed servant who goes to find a bride for the son. And she goes and takes this people called the church. And do you know what happens before the church actually physically, face to face, sees the groom? The Holy Spirit, this unnamed servant, is introducing the bride to the groom. Which is what John 14, 15, 16 is all about. Hey, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to you to teach you all things and bring me into remembrance. And he's going to really guide you into all truth, which is a person, folks. This, this just, I know I'm a little over, but this blew my mind. Abraham sent an unnamed servant, found a bride for Isaac at a well. By the way, just a fun side note. Read the book of Ruth. Guess who introduces Ruth? To Boaz, an unnamed servant. Anyway, <clears throat> so Abraham finds a bride for Isaac at a well. Jacob goes to a well and meets Rachel. Moses happens to go to a well and meets Zipporah, his wife. It's not by accident. When you come into John chapter 4, here's Jesus, tired after a long day, hot afternoon, happens across a well. He goes, hey guys, why don't you go into town and get some food? I'm going to sit here by a well. And as they go, it's midday. No one's going to be out there. But there's this woman who happens to show up and she's going to draw water. He says, hey, what are you doing here? And she goes, well, <laughs> I'm kind of actually rejected. And uh, so I'm drawing water. Now she's a Samaritan. And a good Jewish man would not talk to a Samaritan, especially a Samaritan woman. Do you know what a Samaritan is? Half Jew, half Gentile. Just ponder this for one second. Do you realize that the bride of Christ is half Jew, half Gentile? That there is a graphing of the two together. And the Samaritan woman, oddly, is a picture of this thing. And Jesus says, well, hey, why don't you call your husband and we'll hang out? And she goes, well, I don't have a husband. He goes, you are right. Because <laughs> you've had five husbands. And the sixth one that you're with now is not your husband. She goes, how would you know that? Do you realize that Jesus, in some sense, was basically saying, can I be the seventh? And if you know anything about Hebrew numbers, seven is the number of completion. It's the number of finality. There were seven days of creation, and then it ended. Jesus was basically saying to this woman, now again, not literally, we're talking symbolically here. It's like she becomes a picture of the church, and he says, hey, 
I be the, can I be it? Hey, you've been searching for something and all these other friends and lovers and guys and you've never found what you're actually looking for. But can I be what you're looking for? Because I'm the fi final. Hey, I'm the completion of this thing. I am to be your groom. And he uses the language of living water. That I am your living water. His side was opened up. And what came forth was blood and water. Literally, living water. Leviticus 17.11, life is in the blood. So what poured forth from him was a gusher of living water. Why? Because he is life. And he is standing over you as a bridegroom who rejoices over his bride, saying, oh, call me Ishi. Can I ask you, are you a bride or are you a prostitute? Because you recognize that oh, I'm with Jesus, I'm with Jesus. But then I'm placating the culture that's called a prostitute. Because a bride is someone who is set apart and only has one focus and one intent and one love and one passion and one consumption, which is him. And if anything else removes that, if anything else causes distraction, you're not a pure and spotless bride. Now you realize that Technically, the bride is corporate. That's not you're the bride, it's we're the bride. But you are a part of this. Which means you're important. Which means you need to be pure and spotless. Which means distractions in your life need to be removed. Why? Because he wants to be your bridegroom. He's not mad at you. He's madly in love with you. He's not wanting to stomp on your head. He's wanting to embrace you. Why? Because that's what a bridegroom does. This is Hosea reaching around Gomer in the midst of the prostitution saying, let me just, will you begin to trust me? Would you just begin to let me expound my love to you? And would you just, hey, I, hey I'm going to clean you up, Ezekiel 16. And hey, I'm going hey, to put all the best robes on you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deck you out with the finest jewels. I'm going to put the best food in front of you. Will you just, will you stay focused? Will you just be ready? Would you just prepare yourself? Will you just somehow... Hey, would you allow the unnamed servant to acquaint you with me on a whole new level? So that the moment you see me, you're, it's not like, whoa, is that him? It's, whoa, that is him. Wouldn't it be neat when Jesus returns, if it wasn't a surprise for you? Because you've been so acquainted with the unnamed servant that you just knew his heart and his mind and his life. In fact, you were pulled out of his side. You have his DNA and his lifestyle. Hey, his identity has become your identity. You have his name, which is not just a name. It's his character, his nature, his attitude. It's his life. This is a great mystery, says Paul. But I speak of the Christ in the church. Jesus. Lord, I'm just awestruck at the reality that <laughs> that it is not good for you to be alone. Somehow, the self-sufficient God is not wanting to be alone. And that you have this beating heart for your people. That somehow you're wanting to draw us in and, and somehow and, and embrace us and incorporate us and, 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 and have us fall in love with you. Well, I don't, I don't, I do not understand that. You who was righteous and holy and pure and spotless came down and was birthed in a manger, which is a picture of my life. And somehow you want to be birthed in the midst of our junk. 
so that we can be pure and made spotless, ready for you. And Lord, there is coming a day where, hey, the trump is going to sound and there's going to be a shout and, whoa, we're going to meet you face to face. And hey, we're going to have a bridal party and, wow, there's going to be a marriage supper. And, but Lord, I don't want to waste this time. I don't want to waste these years. I don't want to waste a single moment. Lord, I don't want to prostitute myself with culture. I don't want to get distracted even with good stuff. I don't want to get distracted with religious stuff. I just, I want to be consumed and obsessed and focused on one single thing. And that is you. Yes. Now, that doesn't mean I can't watch a movie. That doesn't mean I can't get married. That doesn't mean I can't, I understand that, Jesus. But I, I want the throbbing beat of my heart to be one single thing. I want my, the consumption of my being to be you. I want... Somehow, I want to be rejoiced over like a bridegroom rejoices over the bride. And then in return, I, I want to have the focus that a bride has for her groom, where she's just always making herself ready and just prepared and excited. And Lord, could you, could you somehow do that in me? And granted, it is a little awkward as a man talking about being a bride. But the reality is, Jesus, this is all about you and a church. And you are wanting to cleanse us with the washing of your word. And you're wanting to make us pure and spotless. That you have chosen us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before you in love. That, hey, that you have called us out and that you have a purpose and a plan. And, and it is so phenomenal to me, Jesus, that you died on my behalf. But it is even more of an amazing reality that that wasn't your eternal purpose. That was to get me into the reality that I could be filled with you. That my life can declare to the heavenlies that you are God. And that when the world and, and all of creation and the entire universe looks at my life, they could say, wow, there's a God of the universe. Why? Because somehow they see you in me. And this isn't just me showing you off, Jesus. This is, this is me actually having relationship and intimacy and oneness with you. Somehow that is growing better and better year by year. That somehow is going to be consummated in the eternities in the reality of you being face to face with me. That is so crazy. Oh, but I love you for it. Heads are bowed. Where are you at? Look, look at your life. Are you a pure and spotless bride, ready, anxious, awaiting your king of kings and lord of lords and your bridegroom of bridegrooms? Or do you have one foot in Jesus and one foot in the culture saying, well, yes, I'm, hey, I, at least I get to go to heaven. But my life is marred and full of junk and darkness. And in fact, I've been prostituting myself with the world. What would it be like to embrace Jesus? Not for what you get from him. Not for the fact that you can, you know, get out of a hell free card. What if you would embrace Jesus for Jesus? Well, what if you would embrace Jesus for the fact that he loves you? Well, what if you would have just embraced Jesus for the fact that, that since even before time began, he had one consuming passion, and that was a bride, you. See, what would happen if, if you would somehow embrace him and say, Jesus, I'm in this for you no matter what I get. Gifts or no gifts, great clothes or no great clothes, heaven or hell, I, this, I, this is about you. And yeah, all that stuff will come, but... What would happen if you would come to Jesus for Jesus? Well, what if you would allow him to rejoice over you? What if you would be obsessed and focused with him like a bride would be obsessed and focused on her wedding day? What if you would allow him to take those 
dark spots of your life and begin to purify and cleanse you and make you ready. We're just going to spend a few moments. And if you want to come and get on your face and spend some time with your bridegroom, can I encourage you not just to, well, that was nice. I'll do that someday. Because it's interesting, there were 10 virgins awaiting the bridegroom. And 10 said, well, I think we're fine. We'll wait this thing out. And they missed it. And this isn't a, you know, hey, fire brimstone kind of stuff. This is, why wouldn't you get wrapped up in the love of Jesus? Why wouldn't you just, in full abandonment, just run and grab a hold of him? Well, we want to give you time to respond. We love it, Jesus. Well, I hope that sermon encouraged you and edified you and pressed you into the greater realities of Jesus Christ. Oh, that we might know him in intimacy and oneness and truly be a bride and not a, you know, not a harlot, not someone who is stained and, and tainted by the world, but truly a pure and spotless bride. For show notes of this episode, including resources, links, and a video version of the sermon, please visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 73 for episode number 73. And until next time, know I am cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ.